Uh, if you take out your Bibles, please, and open to Ecclesiastes 2, or turn on your Bibles, or swipe your Bibles open, however you're doing it these days. Um, and a quick announcement, uh, just to remind you each week, if you would, regular attenders, new people, every single week, if you would fill out that tear-off strip on your, in your bulletin, please let us know that you're here. Share with us prayer requests, questions that you might have. Uh, sign up for whatever's there, especially nursery or what have you. Uh, communicate with us about what's going on in your life. And then you can deposit those on your way out. There are these black boxes right by the doors on the wall. That's where you can put this strip, and that's also where you can place offering that you might have brought with you uh, in the morning. So please do that every week if you would. Uh, so with that, let's pray, and then we're going to ask God to help us as we study his word together. In the name of Jesus, we come to you, Father, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we know that it is through the Spirit of God that we are able to pray even things that we don't know how we ought to pray for. He helps us. But we know, Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we know one thing to ask for, and that is your help. This is your revelation. This is how you disclose yourself to us, or at least one of the primary ways. And God, we really, really want to know you. For as we read this revelation, we learn that you have redeemed us. You made us for yourself. We fell away. You sent your son, and you have reclaimed us by his death if we will turn to you in repentance and faith and receive Christ's sacrifice. That's what you've done for us. So we want to know about this God who's been so gracious to us I pray, Lord, that as we study this morning, we would know you better, that it would quicken our hearts and affections for you, that we would love you more diligently and more fully, that we would give you the whole of our lives as you rightfully deserve, for you have made us for yourself. Teach us from your word, we pray, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. The last couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking through Ecclesiastes, especially one of the phrases, the key phrases in the book, life under the sun, which is life on the human plane, life on this earth. It's not a godless life. It's not the atheist's life. It's just life as it is, real life or the real world, as I'm titling the series here. And I've argued that it is King Solomon, who is our author, uh, and uh, in fact, our experimenter throughout the book. In fact, sometimes he is referred to as the quester, which I think is an interesting title for him. And he has taken a very uh, methodical, almost a scientific approach to examining life under the sun. And last week we saw what he did was he basically conducted a series of unfortunate experiments to try to test out life as it is, and to see what mankind might gain from all of his toil under the sun. And um, he pretty much came up empty, if you'll remember. And it has basically caused him uh, to start the book, to begin the book with this really attention-arresting phrase, Chabel, which is translated in our Bibles as meaningless or sometimes vanity, or emptiness, and I think those are all really unfortunate translations. Chabel means vaporous, elusive, or fleeting. 
Uh, all of those words are within the range of meaning, but I think as you study the book out, it's those meanings which resonate more with the author's message. Life isn't empty, but it's vaporous. It's hard to get a hold of, hard to control, hard to make it go your way. <clears throat> and so in all of these uh, experiments that Solomon has conducted, he is continually frustrated by this reality and inescapability of death that he continues to run into. If death ultimately takes all of us, then what gain is there in life? What can we take from it? What can we net? What can we yield? What can we profit? Conclusion, Chabel. There is life, it's here, it matters, but it's gone too quickly. Last week, however, we did discover that there was one little ray of light in sort of his experiments. Uh, we noticed that there was um, this one bit of pleasure, uh, this one sort of uh, minor positive reaction on what was otherwise a flat field of results. And it had to do with work, the enjoyment of his work. Uh, we see it in chapter 2, verse 10, the second half of the verse, where he said, my heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward of all my toil. And so this positive spike that we noted here uh, is a bit of an anomaly against all of the other flat results. It didn't solve the riddle of life completely, but something was registered as valuable. Uh, again, not in what was ultimately produced, but in what was actually experienced. And that's really, I think, a key. Last week, I labeled that phenomenon uh, Lego theology, if you were here with us. Meaning, you know, when you were a kid, or maybe some of you still today, as others confessed from first service, you spill out the Lego bricks, and you start building, and you're having a great time constructing something. And when you're done, and you've built this galactic rocket ship, the fun is really over. Who wants to play with the last thing that you made? The fun part is the building, the making, the creating, the imagining. And it seems that it is this experience of work that Solomon found delight in, not necessarily the end result or take of the work. And so today we're going to look at sort of the value of our work, its meaning, its benefit. And we're going to try to develop a theology of work uh, through what Solomon lays out here. Now, before we get going too far, we're going to do a group exercise this morning. How many of you love doing group exercises in large groups? Nobody. Great. This is awesome. I didn't tell you it was coming. So here's what we're going to do. To the person next to you, I'm going to ask you to uh, ask them and discuss two questions. All right? Uh, so this is, fellas, this is your opportunity to meet that pretty girl next to you on legitimate grounds. Okay? So don't blow it. Quick breath check. Right? Okay. Here are your two questions. Number one. What is a job that you hate doing? You just, just can't stand doing it. And number two, what is a job you actually don't mind doing? You kind of enjoy it. And I'll give you two examples. I hate folding and putting away laundry. Hate it. I hate it. I'll just take the laundry, throw it on the chair next to the bed, and keep wearing the same stuff just to avoid putting it away. So a little confession there. Um, but one job I don't mind doing, I like mowing the lawn. I find it very satisfying. It smells great. It's a little bit of work. I've got a self-propelled mower now. 
And that feels pretty good. And then when you're done, it's like, you know what? The work to reward ratio, pretty good. I enjoyed that. So those are your two questions. A job you hate, a job you love. Discuss. Okay. Hopefully you, you've got our phone number by now. If you, if you don't, you move way too slow. So let's take a look at how Solomon feels about work as this is sort of part of his experiments here. We'll look at chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life because all the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Wait a minute here. Where are we going with this? All of it is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is Chabel. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is Chabel. And a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving <coughs> with which they labor under the sun? All, the days, uh, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is Hebel. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases God, gives him wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is Chabel and chasing after the wind. So I hope you notice sort of the two different tones in these two different paragraphs. The first paragraph really is kind of despair and lament and frustration of trying to get something from one's work, right? And then the second paragraph has a lot more to do with enjoyment and, and a bit of pleasure. Enjoyment of the simple things that God gives, good meals, good friends gathering together. And so what I want you to take away this morning, and it's in your handout at the top in the box, this is kind of the main idea here. The difference between despair and enjoyment is not fretting about what you gain from your effort, but about receiving with gratitude what God gives. And there is the difference. So let's look at our first point here, and that's this. It's the constant of death uh, that continues to discourage our, the quester here, as we've called him. This constant of death. He keeps running into it. And I think we can all agree. Yeah, I'm not too keen on death either. It's not real high on my priorities, right? The implications of death for Solomon is this. You, you can't take it with you. Whatever you get, whatever you accumulate, whatever you mass here on earth, that's where it stays. It's not coming with you. And death exposes that. Death basically squashes the entrepreneur's dreams. 
Uh, I don't know if you know any entrepreneurs. Um, if you've been around them, uh, they can actually be sort of difficult people uh, at times. Uh, they don't operate like other people. Uh, sometimes they have what we might call uh, a low uh, emotional intelligence. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. That's just the nature of them. And they tend to be really good at looking at systems and how systems operate. But then they can sometimes struggle to see persons in the systems. And it's just kind of how they're wired. But entrepreneurs know how to make money. They know how to save money. And they know how to make all of their earnings and their savings make more money, right? That's how entrepreneurs work. When I was a college student, I had a, summer, a youth summer internship in Yakima, Washington. And I got to house sit for a very wealthy orchardist uh, while I was there. So about two weeks, I stayed in there. It's not quite a mansion, but close. And it was located right next to their packing warehouses, adjacent to all of the orchards that they had. And then he was also an investor in the local golf course, uh, had kind of built that originally and some of the estates around it. So very wealthy family. And I got to house it, which was kind of fun. And they had in their backyard the largest personal swimming pool I've ever seen before. Uh, it was about half the size of this room, if you can imagine that, in their backyard for their family. And I remember thinking, why, why, do you, you know, why do you want a pool this big? Can you imagine cleaning this or taking care of it? Or, uh, anyways, so I kind of asked about it to one of the family business partners, and he explained to me that sort of the, the owner of the business, whose home I was staying in, had discovered that if there was a body of water of a certain capacity within a certain proximity to the packing warehouses, he would save scads of money on insurance enough money to build a swimming pool, to pay for it, and then to save that money every year. Knew how to make money, save money, and make the savings make money. That's how an entrepreneur works, right? And Solomon is one who has cracked this entrepreneurial code, but he has not cracked the code of death. He can't escape that one. It's sort of a, a nagging reality that he can't get around. For all of his wealth, for all of his earnings, for all of his profits, all of his projects and ingenuity, he cannot buy, build, or pay his way out of death. It's coming. And I think it might sound a little bit funny, but um, I would imagine that death is especially frustrating for creative, high-powered entrepreneurs, right? They're used to finding the loophole, the workaround, the alternative perspective that nobody else saw, but there's no cheating death. You can't escape it. Or to say it this way, your heart only has so many beats. Yours, the one in your chest right now. Only so many beats. Or I could even accentuate it. It only has so many beats left, right? The story of your life, it only has so many chapters, so many pages, so many words, and a final punctuation is coming. Chabel. Chabel. So what are we to do with this? How does this relate to work? What Solomon finds here is that work is frustrating because prophets are ultimately left behind. And even worse than knowing that we can't take it with us is knowing to whom we have to leave it at times. He makes the point here, 
we may have to leave our earnings to a fool. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all of the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is Chabel. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who hasn't toiled for it. This too is Chabel and a great misfortune. What do people get for all of the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is Hebel. In other words, in the very real world, we may find ourselves having worked very hard, the good retirement account, a really nice nest egg, and a knucklehead son. And that's what we might have. And you think about how egregious this would be for Solomon. For all of his wisdom, for all of the instruction that he has given, his stature as a king, and in fact, even Solomon has a knucklehead son. His name is Rehoboam, if you know of him. You can read about him in 1 Kings 8 through 12. His only distinction in scripture is that he is known for losing 10 twelfths of his father's wealth and estate. 10 twelfths really of the kingdom of God. Uh, his first act, in, at least that's recorded to us, in succeeding Solomon was to try to make this decision about how to treat the people. He gathers together the elders. They give him good advice. He rejects it and then goes to his knucklehead friends and gets counsel from them, unwise counsel, and in one single decision unravels the whole kingdom and it splits north and south, 10 twelfths of his father's building, gone. The apple fell far from the tree, we might say. I think we actually find the same kind of thing in life, our lives. Uh, it almost seems to me that wisdom skips the generation. Uh, if you're sitting next to your child, get your elbows ready here. I think the cycle goes something like this. One generation, first generation, works really hard in life, tries to get ahead, they sacrifice, they work hard, they save, they build slowly, and eventually through wisdom and discipline and care and thoughtfulness, they carve out a nice life for themselves. Generation two, the kids that grew up in this environment, well, they grew up thinking that this quality of life that they got from their parents is a de facto standard, a de facto right that everybody should get and they assume that it's theirs immediately. They didn't bother to notice the sacrifice and the hard work and the skill of the couple who cobbled it together over years. And that second generation often ends up squandering what they received because they didn't know how to work for it. Generation three watches the squandering of this couple and says, I'm not going that way. I'm not gonna be like my parents. As they watch it unfold, they decide, I'm going to work hard. I will make the sacrifices, and I will build wealth and success brick by brick. And so it almost seems like there is a pendulum to wisdom, right? That sort of tick-tocks back and forth. Wisdom to folly. Wisdom to folly. Chabel. 
right? This isn't absolute. It's not a guarantee, but it's common. And you can run through families and people that you know and love and care for, and you can see it in their lives too. So the reality here, hard-earned profit, it's left in jeopardy to the next generation. Now, I want you to notice that in the first paragraph that we looked at, what proves to be Habel here is not the work itself. It's not the labor. It's actually the work aimed at accumulating. It's the stuff. It's the things that are Habel because they're ultimately forfeited or put in jeopardy to an heir or to a successor. And so what we realize here is it's the cash. It's the assets. It's the portfolio, the investments, the securities, the enterprise itself. These are not the treasure. These things are a mirage of value. And the sooner we figure that out, the happier we will be. The Apostle Paul coached his protege, Timothy, to the same effect. 1 Timothy 6.10, when he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So is it money itself? No. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But I think one of the real treasures of life that we find here is enjoying the work itself. Enjoying the job, enjoying the task. Not the goods that it will buy, but the good work itself. I referred to that last week as Lego theology. And there's a lot of good Christian authors who have contributed to this sort of theme of work and vocation as Christians and doing all of our work as unto the Lord. I've listed several of them in, in your notes, Dorothy Sayers and Tim Keller and some others, R. Paul Stevens. So if you want to chase this theme down a little bit, those are some great um, authors to consider. Let's go to our next point here, sort of the command or the instruction that we get. I think you're going to like this one, church. Find joy in the good work itself and not in the, gain, or the, the goods gained. Um, here again, the, the emphasis is on the experience and not the result. Uh, another way we could look at this that might land a little more for us is in maybe our recreational interests, because I know there's a lot of recreational folks. This is Alaska after all. So let's put it like this. Do you like the best bike that money can buy or do you enjoy riding? Do you like the best, I'll pick on myself, fly rod that money can buy or do you enjoy standing in the stream and chasing the fish? Do you like the glossiest instrument you can get your hands on or do you delight in the music that comes from it? See, we can, get, we can get hooked on the object or the artifact or the goods or the material thing. But what Solomon is taking us to here is the experience, not just the items that will end up in our estate someday, but the experiences that we will get. You ever go to an estate sale? If it's a good spiritual discipline for you, I'd challenge you this summer when you're driving down the road and you happen to come across one of those signs, estate sale, just stop in, walk around, not intending to buy anything, and just look at all of these things that are laying out that once upon a time had incredible value, were prized, cherished, 
hung up, sat on a shelf, dusted, cared for, saved for, spent upon, and now they're on a white lifetime plastic table for sale for a nickel. <laughs> That's a spiritual discipline on value, right? Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, but God does give us some good experiences. And using the skills and trades that he's given to us to work for him in this world is really sweet. There's a delight that Solomon took in this. So look at verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is chabel, chasing after the wind. All right, so some pretty specific application points for you. And I do believe you'll enjoy them and might actually do them this week. The first is this. Enjoy good food and a good beverage. How about that? Recognize it as from the hand of God, a good gift that he gives. When you sit down and have a meal, I'll, I'll, I'll just encourage you to here. I think something, this is a habit that can become rote or lose its meaning, but I think it's important. When you sit down to a good meal, retain the habit of saying Grace. And remember what it is that you're doing in that act. You're recognizing that in a moment that not everybody in the world is going to have even one good meal. You're probably going to have a couple that day. And this, what is in front of you, is in fact from God's hand. And it nourishes our body. And it tastes great. It's flavorful. God put flavor in food and our bodies to be able to appreciate that and enjoy it. And it's something around which we can gather with friends. Those are good things. And to turn our hearts Godward and to thank him and to be grateful for them is appropriate. Not in a rote, rattle off the same old words, but with a real heart of thankfulness. And I think as Alaskans, we're really uh, privileged in this because we're a little closer to our food than a lot of people are, Right? Uh, it's not just go to the supermarket and pull the cellophane back and there we go. But think about when you pull the cooler home and you open it up and there are the reds that you just caught down at the Kenai. And before even freezing them, you're going to lay a filet on the grill. And when you eat that, you know, this is really good. And God has been kind to us. This is a gift. Or when you, in the fall, you get back from a moose hunt and uh, all of it's going in the freezer except the back straps. You eat those first. Don't even freeze them. Enjoy them. And you take that and you realize God gave us this. We had this success not because we we're so great, but God was kind. Or in the, in the late fall when you pull in your berries and you get to put them in your desserts and your pancakes and whatever, and you realize these things were here in nature. We didn't put them here. We didn't farm them. We didn't cultivate them. God did, and he gave them to his people to delight in. Our God is very good and kind to us, and we can rejoice in these things. Enjoy good food and a good beverage. Take it in as a gift from the Lord. 
Secondly, might be a little more challenging here, enjoy good work. Enjoy good work. I'm just gonna run through a list of tasks that you guys do to cause you to think about the kinds of things and the way we might see it as in fact good and from God's hand. Enjoy a good clean cut on a nice piece of timber. Enjoy a freshly mowed lawn and even the process of walking back and forth making the little sideways stripes. Enjoy selecting perfect and complementary fabrics to put together that quilt just right. Enjoy laying down perfect stitches and straight seams and nice beaded welds. If you're a teacher, enjoy the instruction of children and watching for those moments of discovery when it clicks and they get it and they're thrilled and you were part of the process. Enjoy repairing that machine that was broken and it set everybody else off, it delayed the work and you were able to get into it, disassemble it, put it back together correctly and hear the sweet purr of something running correctly. Enjoy renovating that chair or the deck or the car. Enjoy providing order or detail to processes for employees for their good. Enjoy reconciling the books and distributing wages and ensuring benefits for employees. Enjoy good work and enjoy the process of it. As we said last week, work is not the result of the fall. That is a lie. Work is one of God's original gifts. Frustrated work, when the power goes out and the Wi-Fi goes down, the weeds grow up and the mower won't start, that's the result of the fall. But good, wholesome work is, in fact, a gift from God. And I think it's one of the ways, as we do this, we sort of recapture a bit of our dignity before the Lord. He's made us to be human. He's made us to be workers. And as we do these kinds of work, we actually image God and act as his extensions in the world. So let me think, I want you to think about this. I'm going to name off a bunch of types of, of things that you do. I want you to think about the job that you have or the primary vocation that you have and see if you can think of one word that sort of captures it. Repair, clean, nurture, whatever it might be. And just listen to these, these that might actually describe your vocation. Create, fashion, repair, lead, serve, communicate, clean, order, maintain, Build, care, protect, instruct, heal. So these words that I've just mentioned, these are descriptive of some of the things that you do. But all of these words describe what God does. So do you see that? You're like a finger, like an extension of what God is doing in the world. He uses you. He uses your vacation Vocation. <laughs> vacation, too. God rested. He uses your vocation as an extension of his work in the world. When you are working well, you are working for the Lord. And you are part of his handiwork. So I would say reclaim your own work as an exercise of honoring God. 
You may have one of those jobs and you think, oh my goodness, when I get up in the morning, I want to just bang my head into the wall. I can't believe I've got to go do this again. Do you know what? The Lord sustains this world day in and day out. You want to talk about repetitive work? And thankfully, he does it every day. Look at your vocation and see how it fits into God's economy of this world. Lastly here, be grateful for God's good gifts. There's a real emphasis in sort of the back half of this, these last three verses, as all of these things is from his hand, from God, what God gives. And therein we find the delight. Not that we wrung these things out of life, but God gave good things and we received them from his hand, principally enjoying this good work. Not the goods produced or the gain accumulated, but the good work itself. And I would conclude by telling you this, or reminding you of this. Jesus was a worker. He grew up in a carpenter's home. Now, we have no particular passage that places us in the shop with his earthly father, Joseph, but I bet he was there. I would imagine he had calluses on his hands and had strong hands from work and probably was out in the shop with his dad. And we're also told that at the age of 30, he began a three-year stint of public ministry. That's it. Just three years, and he worked for that period of time. And at the very end of it, he said an amazing thing. He prayed, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do. That's an incredible statement, especially at age 33. I'm 45, and I didn't even finish last week's you know, to-do list. It's just carrying over for me. But at the end of his life, he made that statement. And even that work that he performed, he did with joy. Pastor Ethan reminded us last week of this passage, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The work, the primary work that God had given him to do, he did with joy. He redeemed our souls, and that is his best work. Praise God for that. So we're going to turn our attention to that this morning through communion. And uh, uh, let me pray for us first, and then I'll give some instructions. Father, we thank you that you have given us gifts and abilities and talents and experiences to do work in this world. And we recognize that it is oftentimes frustrated because of the fall but I pray, God, that we would enjoy these tasks and these abilities as from your hand, enjoying the work itself, not latching on to the profit and the gain and what's going to go into the bank, but just enjoying the process. May we also enjoy good food and good drink and good company, these good things that you give. May we receive them as gifts and receive them with gratitude. And we thank you first and foremost for the work that Christ has done for us, the work of the cross, which brings us into right relationship with you. And we know that, Lord, one day we will be with you and we will have good work to do with you then. Help us enjoy what we have and enjoy it as from your hand. We pray in Christ's name, amen.